bullseye. Ha ha. Whoa, Kelly. Nice crossbow. Thanks, Mark. I've been trying to channel one of my favorite James Bond girls, Melina Havelock, from For Your Eyes Only. You mean Judy Havelock? No, I'm pretty sure it's Melina. I'm positive it's Judy. Well, I guess we can just agree to disagree. Or we could do a podcast comparing the book and the movie and find out who's right. You're on. All right, everyone. Grab your hot air balloon. And your bomb-detecting robot. And join us as we discuss James Bond here in the books. And there in the movies. Episode 8, Walkin' the Line. So the first story we're looking at is from A View to a Kill. Bond investigates the murder of a motorcycle dispatch rider and the theft of his top secret documents by a motorcycle riding assassin. The rider was en route for SHAPE, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, then located in Versailles to his base station F in St. Germain in France. Since Bond is already in Paris, his superior M sends him to assist in the investigation in any way he can. Bond disguises himself as a dispatch rider and follows the same journey to Station F as the previous rider. So this is a pretty standard opening story for this. This is uh, Ian Fleming's first book as uh, short stories. And I thought this one was, pr- was pretty well done. Um, he kind of tracks these guys down to their, their secret headquarters that they've set up in, in uh, Versailles. And it's really this big find for him. And it's a big win because it's it's this major operation. Uh, the movie is completely different, uh, but we'll talk about the short story first. Kelly, what struck out to you in this story? Um, to be honest, not a lot stuck out to me in this story. This was I I couldn't I I was having to really uh, reread passages a bunch of times. I just it was kind of I couldn't get into it. You know, it was forgettable. Like even as I was reading, my mind was just wandering. You know, I couldn't. <laughs> Um, I don't know why. I mean, it was 30 pages. It's not like it, it, it was not like it was a, a Homeric right. novel in length, but I don't know. I just, um, I didn't really care for it that much. Tell us how you feel. I, I would agree. I mean, I think it's, it's like, um, it's nothing we haven't seen before. You know, it's, it's not like it's fresh or new. He, I think he still does a great job with, um, with with some imagery and mood like i've got this this sentence marked around the scene of the killing the forest which had held its breath while it was done slowly began to breathe again uh, but i think you're right that nothing pops out from this story uh the girl ends up saving him which is kind of cool uh true so he shows a little growth there you know more respect for women in the female roles but um but it like i said it's pretty straightforward it's like a solid spy story but but as Kelly says, nothing great. Um, now the movie from A View to a Kill. If we want to go ahead and, and take a huge leap forward, uh, mm-hmm. let's do that. I'll read the synopsis for the movie. Uh, after recovering a microchip from the body of a deceased colleague in Russia, British secret agent James Bond, played by Roger Moore, discovers that the technology has the potential for sinister applications. Investigating further, Bond is led to Max Zorin, Christopher Walken, the head of Zorin Industries. Soon, Agent 007 faces off against the villainous Zorin. So, just initial thoughts about this movie. So, this this would be ugly for me. Um, using our, our The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly podcast format. Um, 
this is a terrible movie and and you're right it, it's it, it it the only resemblance it bears to the to the short story is its name but um just i mean christopher walken in this grace joan i mean this was a star-studded movie and uh-huh. all i could think was um who played stacy sutton or stacy sutter all i could think was midge from that 70s show this is the only other thing I've ever seen her in. And she was, you know, completely like a knockout. So young and beautiful, but her acting was so bad. I did not realize Uh, that was the same person. You just blew my mind. But now it, now it connects with a shotgun full of rock salt. And uh, yes, you know, this, this for me, it's interesting because some of it is, is a little less campy. And yet you still have Christopher Walken in a hot air balloon. I couldn't I couldn't decide where it fell on the like the camp continuum, you know what I mean? Yeah. It it's it's tricky because there were times there's there's a lot to like about it. You know, it's it's funny, it sucks you in, but but then, I mean, as you say, like the working in of the movie title and yeah. Christopher yeah. <laughs> they're like up in the hot air balloon yeah. and he's like, "What a view to, to a kill." kill. <laughs> Exactly. It was just, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the, the other, sorry. The other thing is the catchphrases, and we've joked about this with the with uh, one of our Fleming brand ads, with the you know these one liners when people die. But in this movie, it's even when there's a ally. He's he's getting information from this guy, and uh, Mayday kills him by by hooking with this poisoned hook on a fishing line on a fishing pole. And as Bond like runs after, he says, "There's a fly in his soup," and and like runs after, like that was your friend that was giving you information, and you're just reducing his life to one line at, 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 as yes. he dies. It just didn't click with me. No, I I totally agree, and this is why the, this movie um, and For Your Eyes Only, uh, some of the others we'll be discussing. But Roger, I'm just not a big fan of the Roger Moore movies. Generally speaking, I mean, there's there are things to like about them, but Roger Moore, he just all of his movies seem so much campier, yeah, than than the rest of them. Um, and I, and oh even no. the, these two were less so, but um, oh. but still, but still campy, you know, still in that in that camp, so to speak. Yeah, that wasn't meant to be a pun. Sorry, guys. Yeah, and you say that uh, you know Roger Moore is your least favorite, and I I see that. But I also get the when I was I just recently listened to the Joan Crawford Good Bad podcast and you talked about how word how hardworking she is. I feel like that's how Roger Moore is like, you know. He's still he did the he did the most movies and he's he just seems like he's there. He and he's up for anything and he he works hard, but it, he's still not my favorite either. Right, and and that's that's a good point. I the reasons I dislike his Bond movies aren't necessarily his fault. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it just feels like he brought a certain flair to it and the writers took that and ran with it, you know, and they, (laughs) and so, and so they wrote his lines Uh going forward in a very cheesy way. So I don't know. He pulls them off in, in that kind of (laughs) tone, but he does, but looking back from 2000, you know, 17, uh, it just doesn't work all the time. Right. Well, something funny that I think um, in one of your episodes of Good Bad Podcast, when we talked about the Daniel Craig Bond movies, uh, we were discussing Quantum of Solace. And um, I think it was then that you brought up that Roger Moore had commented on it about how the the cuts were too vague and it was hard to know what was Mm -hmm. going on with the plot and and it was too long and stuff. 
it's funny that he said, I mean, those things were true about Quantum of Solace, but they're also true about a lot of his own Bond yeah. movies, you know? So that just st- stuck out as being interesting to me because I, I revisited that quote and I was like, well. Yeah, and the other thing I've started to notice in these movies is it's easy to tell when there's a stunt double. A lot of those cutscenes with the action, it, it took me out of the the experience because I could tell it was a stunt double. The hair didn't quite look the same from the back or whatever it was. Um, right. You know, but that's just the, the movie making aspect. Um, as far as good things about this movie, I really like the horse race scene. I thought that was pretty thrilling. Uh, they show clips of the, you know, these huge thousand pound horses, you know, you know uh, racing across the ground and Bond could fall on any minute and get trampled underneath. Um, I liked Walken's performance at the end when, when he's pulling off his plan and he basically just has a machine gun shooting all these mine workers as they're trying to flee the, the flooding uh, cavern, you know, and he's laughing as they're all dying. And that was pretty sinister. Uh, yeah. And I thought he was perfect for that role. He was. I it's um, I haven't seen too many movies where he's that young. Right. And yeah. so it, he is, he's very sinister in a weird, youthful, bleach blonde kind of way. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on to our second short story, unless you have anything else to say about this movie. Nope. Kind of standard. So the uh, next short story is For Your Eyes Eyes Only. only. The title story uh, begins with the murder of the Havelocks, a British couple in Jamaica who have refused to sell their estate to Er von Hammerstein, a former Gestapo officer who is the chief of counterintelligence for the Cuban Secret Service. They are killed by two Cuban hitmen at the direction of their leader, Major Gonzalez, all three work for von Hammerstein. The Havelocks turn out to be close friends of M, who serve as the groom's best man during their wedding in 1925. M subsequently gives Bond a voluntary assignment unconnected to sanctioned Secret Service duties to travel to Vermont via Canada to find von Hammerschmidt and his rented estate in Echo Lake and assassinate him as a warning to future criminals who might think to target British citizens. Along the way, he meets Havelock's daughter, Judy, uh, who ends up taking revenge. So... As far as those who were listening to the intro and who care, it was Judy in the short story and Melina in the movie. So, mystery solved. Yes. Um, this uh, this one, I you know, as I was reading, I was annotating just so I'd have things to say. I didn't have much about this, but I did write that um, that Judy was... What, what words did I use? Um, so let me find it here. That was, she was my favorite Bond girl yet. Really? Interesting. Yeah, and let me read Let me read the passage I marked. The girl unstrung her bow. She said indifferently, I'm glad you're seeing, you're seeing sense. These arrows are difficult to pull out. Don't worry about me, but keep out of sight and mind the sun doesn't catch that glass of yours. She gave Bond the brief, pitying, self-congratulatory smile of the woman who has had the last word and turned and made off down through the trees. So she basically tells Bond, you know, make sure you don't give my position away with that glass of your, you know, he's like this super secret spy that, you know, knows everything and she's telling him what for. So I don't know. I just like yep. her confidence and, and uh, that came off a little bit in the movie. Uh, so it, it, yeah, I, I would agree. Um, she definitely is one of the more interesting characters. I, I don't know if I could go all the way to saying that she was my favorite just because, you know, it was so short, but I, if, if she had gotten full novel treatment, I think I definitely would would agree with you. Um, she definitely has the potential to to be one of the most intriguing Bond girls, and she does stand on her own two feet, kind of mm-hmm. like how we were talking about in the Doctor No episode. 
Yep. Um, Honey Child, you know, she she was tough. She was kind of a wild creature, and she did her own thing, and, and I definitely liked that, too. Um, it was frustrating to me that she was so strong and she was so cool, but um, Fleming sort of reverted to a little bit more chauvinistic writing in this one. I thought Bond was thinking all these thoughts about, I mean, how many times did he use the phrase silly B-word, yeah. Yeah. I wrote that down, like, a lot of B-words in this story. Yeah, like, in rapid succession, you know, he was, and he, talking about, like, oh, you know, you, if we get out of this, I'm going to give you the spanking of your life. Oh, yeah. You you don't, no, I thought we had moved past this, James, come on. Maybe as his female characters get more confident, he also has to make Bond more chauvinistic to counterbalance? Maybe. That's my theory. That's very possible. But otherwise, I mean, that that was really the only thing I didn't like about the story. I, I liked the the writing of descriptions of the scenery. And I, I was in, I was interested and invested in the story about the Havelocks. And, um, you know, we've said in the last couple episodes that they've been getting Bond and M have been getting into this sort of weird cattiness. And I felt like that melted away a bit mm-hmm. in, in this story. You know, he was this whole mission was a personal favor to M. And uh, I, I just I thought that was worth exploring and I wish they had used that in the movie. I mean they they used a lot of uh, the movie for your eyes only used they took you know the short story and then they expanded on it. This was basically like the beginning of the mm-hmm. movie but but they didn't set it up in the way that you know oh this is a favor to M oh this is there's this personal element to it. They just made it a standard case which yeah. I thought if you're gonna use so much of the rest of the story, why not use that because mm-hmm. that's the cool thing to me. Well, let's um, let's jump to Rosico because they use a lot of that in For Your Eyes Only as well, and then we'll cut to our to our sponsor before we get into the movie For Your Eyes Only. Um, okay. So let me read a synopsis of Rosico because it's basically the other half of the movie. Let's see. Bond is sent by M to investigate a drug smuggling operation based in Italy that is sending narcotics to England. M instructs Bond to get in touch with the CIA informant Cristados who in turn tells Bond that a man named Enrico Colombo is behind the racket. When Bond sets out to find more information on Colombo, he is captured and brought aboard Colombo's ship, the Colombiana, the, excuse me, Colombina. Colombo informs Bond that Cristados is actually the one in charge of the drug smuggling operation, and that Cristados is backed by the Russians. Colombo agrees to help Bond by providing information about things as long as none of it comes back to Italy. Um, and so as far as my annotations of this story, I wrote nothing down on this one. <laughs> so I don't know what your reaction yeah. was. Uh, uh, the only thing that really popped out to me, and it didn't really pop out so much as it fleetingly passed through my mind, uh, was that the, I think it was the, uh, yes, it was the Columbo character. Um, he reminded me a little bit of Darko Kareem. Yes. From uh, just in that sort of lovable, good, bad guy kind of way. I mean, he was a shifty character and he was by no means good, but he was playing on the good team to team up with Bond and take down Cristados. And so I I thought that was uh, that was sort of cool. It's probably one of Fleming's strengths is writing those those male characters that, you know, you hate to love and love to hate kind of thing. Yeah, Um, for sure. So. All right. So. Let's uh, take a break from our sponsors, and then we'll come back and talk about the movie for your eyes only. All right. 
This episode of James Bond Here and There is brought to you by Fleming Brand Pet Store of Deadly Animals for Deadly Villains. Hey all you bad guys and gals out there, my name is Chesty Sexist Name, General Manager at the Fleming Brand Pet Store of Deadly Animals for Deadly Villains. Keep up with your peers by coming on down to the store and picking up a grotesque or poisonous pet to help strike fear into all those meddlesome spies who find their way to your headquarters. Just listen to this sample of some of our inventory. Great White Sharks. Poisonous Dart Frogs. The Sabertooth Hellhound. The Albanian Knifehorned Anaconda. A massive tank of starved piranhas. The infamous red-ringed centipede of certain death. A giant hippo and her baby you can put the spy in between. Rabid raccoons. A pregnant black widow so that you're already like, oh my gosh, a black widow. But then all the babies hatch at the same time and swarm all over the place. The bone-eating gila monster of Lower East Asia. A fluffy white cat. That's right, so come on down to the shop and find the perfect pet for the perfect villain. That's right. The pet store of deadly animals for deadly villains is the cure for what ails ya. <laughs> Fleming Brand Products for you. Fleming Brand stores are a subsidiary of Fleming Brand Products. All rights reserved. We do not guarantee you won't get ironically killed by your own pet in a final showdown with the English spy. And now, back to the program. And we're back. So let's talk about the movie for your eyes only. A little short synopsis here. When a British ship is sunk in foreign waters, the world's superpowers begin a feverish race to find its cargo, a nuclear submarine control system. And 007 is thrust into one of his most riveting adventures as he rushes to join the search and prevent global devastation. Um, wow, I sounded like that Fleming Brown guy for a second. Um... This, they call it one of his most riveting adventures. I think that's the complete opposite of how I feel about this movie. Yes. In, in terms of plot, it's just like, you know, the, the ship sunk and it had this this nuclear submarine control. There's, there's nothing exciting about it. Um, they spent half their time in Wiz Albania and it's like, I don't know, it just, it kind of drug on for me. What about you, Kelly? I would agree. This movie felt like it was three hours long. I, I fr By the time, I mean, if point A is the beginning and point B is the end, by the time you get to B, like, you've totally lost the the point of it, like, what they're trying to do. I mean, yeah. I, it doesn't even, like, the, I mean, yes, okay, every, anytime Melina comes back, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, now all her parents, like, that's what they're doing. But anytime she's mm -hmm. off screen, it's like you're watching a totally different movie than the one that was set up by the initial action. Yep. Agreed. And I do like Melina. I think she's interesting. I mean, the, the Melina Judy character. I mean, you're you're right. She was a good Bond girl. She kind of kept him on his toes. And... Yeah, and I thought the actor playing Columbo seemed really authentic. I thought he did a really good job portraying uh, that character we just we discussed in the short story. Uh, yeah. So I liked him. I, I got a sense of their camaraderie with Roger Moore and that scene where uh, he gives Roger Moore the gun and Roger Moore kind of points it at him and then, you know, they realize they trust each other. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about BB. <laughs> oh my gosh. The ice skating protege. <laughs> and what did you say? I didn't even doll. pick up on this in the movie. D-A-H-L. BB doll. BB um, doll. God, she was in ridiculous. Well, 
I feel like they were tr- they included her to try to say like he's a gentleman. He would never take advantage of someone who's you know just come of age and. But it to me it backfired. To me it was just like awkward that they even included it. You know it should have gone without saying to begin with. And so. Yes. Uh, and I I thought Christodos was actually her uncle, but then but then at the but then I realized he was just a sponsor and they were implying that that he wanted nefarious things from her at right. the end. But uh, anyway, it was just all uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable, particularly because in this movie, I, I can't remember, is this the last or it's got to be this, like maybe second to last movie of the movies that Roger Moore did. And, and his age is starting to show a little mm-hmm. bit in this movie. Like he definitely looks older. So just the fact that he looked a little bit older. Charles okay, yeah. View to Sorry, I, mean, last. You, I forgot you can hear me. <laughs> um. Yes, it it just it was it was odd, like kind of having an older Bond and a this very young mm. girl, and she was, I mean, when they were on the ski slopes and she had like the weird cowboy hat and the red ca- cowboy ski suit ensemble, that was <laughs> classic. Just, yes, yes, as all Americans do, you know. Um, and her her performance was a little over the top too, you know, that kind of like childish smile <laughs> and shrug, like. I'm making yes. bed, hee hee. It's just, <laughs> it's just really uncomfortable, as I said. Um, and yeah. that may have been because he was aging. That may have been why they did it. But like I said, did not work. Maybe. Um, go ahead. This is this is kind of unrelated to the the ingenue, but I just have to mention this. I laughed so hard in the opening sequence when um, Blofeld like took control of the helicopter that bond was in and then but he was like piloting it remotely and he was in his wheelchair on the roof of a building yes. and he's like Mwahaha. and then bond, like bond flies the helicopter and impales the bottom of his wheelchair with like a prong on the helicopter <laughs> and they fly away and blofeld is like we can make a deal i can buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel i'm like oh, who could pass up that deal did he really say that Yes. I do not remember I, that line. Oh wow. I rewound it and watched it again. Oh wow. It was amazing. And then and then Roger and then Bond drops him into the smokestack or whatever or the silo, whatever it is, and he falls down. Yes. Oh, it was greatness. But and then to, <sighs> to me it was odd that it seemed like it seemed like they were tying up that whole Blofeld storyline in just a short intro sequence. It was so weird. Like that <laughs> should have been a whole movie to to end that. But they were tying it to uh what's the under Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, with uh, Lazenby. Was, was this the movie that came after Lazenby? After no, Majesty's Secret wasn't, Service. But I think they were tying it to that because remember he also um, he. This is the first time a Bond movie's ever acknowledged a different actor that played Bond because he's at the gravesite. Right. For his wife that was killed by mm-hmm. Blofeld in the other movie. I think they were tying it to that movie. Yeah, and so yeah, like, like Charles was saying, it opens up and he's putting flowers on his wife's gravestone. And, and so it's like, oh, he's got a vendetta to settle. And I had forgotten what the plot of this movie was, so I figured that was going to be the whole movie. And then it was just the intro sequence to end this weird, cheesy dumping him into the, <laughs> well, the silo. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Like, yeah. What is happening here? <laughs> and then it, they just go off and do a completely different movie. That, like that. Uh, yep. <laughs> disagree. But you gotta, it's, we- it's cool that it acknowledged the past, another actor playing yeah. Bond. They never, they never do that before. But it wasn't even... It wasn't that they acknowledged the actors; that they acknowledged the plot line of the movie. By a different actor. A previous, yeah, by a different actor, but 
wasn't like they showed a picture of Lazenby. <laughs> yeah, but before that, you never knew. This is what I look like before you never the knew surgery. Where they were chronologically, like if yeah, time yeah. Or, or if any of the Connery movies took place in the same universe as Moore's. Yeah, so that's good. I mean, I, I like that you bring it in the trivia. I appreciate it. I'm sorry. That's no, okay. Um, we've also, I feel like we have also got to acknowledge the hilarious parrot moment at the end with the prime minister. Oh yes. What in the world is that about? In what? I... <laughs> this movie, this movie to me was the least campy yet. But there are these little hint, there are these little scenes that are completely out of place, like that at the. So at the end, the parrot was uh, was mimicking back to the prime minister. You know, she, she, the, so basically, the prime minister called Bond because she wanted to thank him personally for his courage and audacity and whatnot. But Bond is, of course. Uh, making whoopee with Melina Havelock. And so, so he like... So to speak. <laughs> so to speak, yes. And so he leaves this parrot in front of the phone. Uh, and the parrot is like, give us a kiss, give us a, give kiss. Us a kiss. And they don't know that it's a parrot. Like what? How could you not? That's what struck and, me was, how could you not know that was a parrot? Because it showed Q and M like adjusting the dial and it totally sounded like a parrot still. And they were like, oh, we have Bond on the line, Prime Minister. And, and she was like, oh, Mr. Bond. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just, I could not let, let I could not mention that. And I don't blame you. <laughs> All right. Okay, so let's, uh, if you have nothing else to say about that movie, we'll move on to the other uh, short stories. Yeah, the Hildebrand rarity. Yes. This one was my favorite, I think. Um, and maybe we'll, well, let's go to the Quantum of Solace because we haven't mentioned this Oh, shoot, this yeah. I forgot about that. Uh, this, as a writer, this is my favorite story, having read it from Fleming, because, um, and I'll just synopsize it. This is a long one I have in front of me, but after completing a mission in the Bahamas, Bond is in Nassau and attends a dinner party at a government house. When the other guests have left, Bond remarks that if he ever marries, he imagines it would be to a, would be nice to marry an air hostess. The governor then tells Bond the story of a relationship between a former civil servant, Philip Masters, and an air hostess, Rhonda Llewellyn. After meeting aboard a flight to London, the couple married and went to live in Bermuda. And uh, basically what happens is she cheats on him, and he gets revenge by abandoning her um, and leaving her with nothing. Uh, and he, he tells her, you know, you'll, you're pretty, so you'll never starve. And she has to basically claw her way back to existence. And at the end of the story... We realize that it's it was the woman at the party that Bond was that had attended, and so it, was, it came full circle. And I really like the plot device on Fleming's part, and I also like that we're now seeing Bond. You know, this is not a story about Bond at all. It was it was completely about this couple and uh, just as kind of normal government workers, and he's seeing the other side of 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 life. You know, he he lives in this this adrenaline fueled you know rush all the time and and yet here are these other people with their other problems right in front of you yeah it i was i was intrigued by this because i mean you're right it wasn't a bond story it wasn't about him it didn't involve him he was just like a passive listener taking everything in and at the end he was thinking you know it, it, it was like the last couple lines of the story and he was like you know something he his mission he had just concluded or no no the, the mission he was about to go on he was so excited about it and interested by it and now it seemed so blasé because mm -hmm. he he actually was thinking these people 
had the trickier existence these the, just this normalcy of of navigating relationships and um obstacles and whatnot yeah to a point his job is now it is it is uh extreme but it's also simplistic in a way that all he has to do is survive and finish the mission whereas these other people have these you know tricky complicated relationships to deal with and and all he does is you know womanize and get the job done uh yeah. so fascinating and we also get the meaning of quantum of solace um and it's the amount of comfort you get from somebody in a relationship and when that goes to zero when the quantum of solace is zero then there's no hope for the relationship um which having learned that seems odd that the movie quantum of solace <laughs> it seems to be related to it not at all yeah but, uh, yeah so. i guess in some ways it could be like him discovering that he had his quantum of solace for Vesper had dropped to zero and then he was sort of finding mm-hmm. it again along the way because he yeah. hated her so vehemently after what happened at the end of Casino Royale. Uh, and he's like, he, he, <laughs> I like <laughs> Thank it. you, Mark. We've said but, uh we've said privately that that uh Kelly always seems super analytical and critical and and I'm just uh hillbilly ended up over here. Which I strongly disagree with, yeah. because particularly just, I just d- discussed that parrot scene at length, which is the, <laughs> is the opposite of insightful. So. I was just begging for a compliment, and you gave me one. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's move on to the Hill, the last story, it. the Hildebrand rarity. Uh, yes. Bond is on an assignment in the Seychelles Islands through Fidel Barbie, his inf- what? his influential and well-connected local contact. He meets an uncouth American millionaire named Milton Crest, who challenges the two to aid him in the search for a rare fish, the Hildebrand rarity. Bond, Barbie, and Crest, and his English wife Elizabeth, set off aboard the Wavecrest in search for the fish. During the journey, Bond learns that Milton verbally and physically abuses everyone around him, especially his wife, whom he punishes with the use of a stingray tail he dubs the Corrector. Uh, (laughs) So, in the end of this story, spoiler, uh, they find the fish... And uh, Crest kills it by poisoning, like, everything around it and destroying this huge part of this ecosystem on this island um, and and takes it home. And then we find him strangled to, or choked to death with this fish in his mouth. And we don't quite know who does it until the end. Uh, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> so I, this was my favorite story just as a guilty read. Like, it read really well. And Fleming is as ever brilliant when it comes to to writing people we should hate and villains and i think that i think my detestation is the the highest for this for crest in this story as compared to any other villain so far what do you say kelly i would agree he is dastardly times 10 i mean i feel as if he got his just desserts um and it's it's an interesting this one and quantum of solace both seemed like they were i don't know how to explain this but like bond showed a more compassionate side i guess than he often does because he's he's sort of thinking about the the way that um you know he poisoned the water instead of i i, I don't know he just he takes pity on this woman and i don't know no i it's, agree yeah it's a more human side, and Fleming uses that word throughout some of these stories. Uh, mm-hmm. In Quantum of Solace, he wants to get a more human reaction out of the governor. And, yeah, so we, we are seeing Fleming kind of flesh out Bond through these short stories. And I think 
I think it's successful. I mean, I overall this book I think was an enjoyable read. Um, yeah, I would much rather read this book again than watch either of the movies. Agreed. Anyway, agreed. <laughs> So. And it, it's it's fast too. I mean, you feel like you're just blazing through these stories because they're each so brief. Um, so you've read five of them in, in no time at all, which was yeah. cool. Yeah. So uh, we suggest it for any of those out here who want to grab it and read it who haven't already yep. as part of our series. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, that's it. Uh, for the next episode, we will do Thunderball. You can check us out at itsjustawesome.com or hear their series on Twitter. And Kelly, tell them where they can check us out on iTunes. Sure, you can, uh, if you go up to the search bar, you can type in here and there, and that should lead you to us. Well, that music means Bond here and there is done for now, but we will return in Thunderball. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.